The Square Peg Podcast. Commencing Season 2. Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. The Square Peg Podcast. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look to the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Paso. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Science are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekend. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now a word from our sponsor. That's right, we have sponsors now. Have you experienced pain in your lower extremities, even your hips or lower back after standing or walking? Your feet may not fit in your shoes or on the ground properly. Soul Man Foot Insoles, with 30 years' experience making people's feet feel more comfortable, can help. Henry Soulman Velos is the official insole provider for UTEP Athletics and has made custom insoles for my athletic, casual, dress shoes, and work boots for 15 years now. You can find him on Facebook at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles or you can call him at 915-241-2153. That is S-O-L-E-M-A-N Custom Foot Insole on Facebook and call him 915-241-2153. Our guest today is a retired small business owner, an auto and off-road enthusiast, a wife, a mother, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt, and coach, and a black belt in taekwondo. And I have to kind of correct myself. She's not just a Brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt. She is a Gracie Baja Las Cruces Brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt. Sue B. Rue, welcome to the show. Hello, Larry. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad you know we had your husband, David, on as our season finale of season one, and you're going to be the season premiere of season two. Um, All right. You like that. Um, you know, I, I, I would not have felt right if I did not give a, a slight plug to our uh, our great uh, dojo here in Las Cruces, uh, uh, Gracie Baja Las Cruces. It couldn't just be BJJ. It has to be Gracie Baja BJJ. But um, That's right. You were born and raised on the East Coast. Um, now, you lived in New York uh, and Northern Virginia, and if I'm not mistaken, there was some back and forth. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I was born at uh, Virginia Beach Hospital, which no longer exists. I was, I was born uh, mil- uh, to – my father was a West Point graduate. And uh, so we bounced around a bit up and down the East Coast. Uh, my mom's family was from the West Point area in uh, New York, just north of New York City, and that's where my parents met. It was when my dad was at West Point. My mom and her best friend uh, played tennis at the tennis courts at West Point to impress the cadets. And so they each found their own cadets and got married, and then my dad was stationed in uh, Virginia. And then from there, Fort Dix, um, I think at one point, California, but I don't remember that. So maybe California, then Fort Dix, New Jersey. Did you get to spend any time overseas? No, I didn't. Um, when So right from Fort Dix, uh, my dad uh, was uh, called to serve in Vietnam. So my mom and I lived with my grandparents where she was raised. Uh, just outside, just outside of West Point, and he served two tours in Vietnam, and then uh, he came back. Uh, my br- uh, brother was born. That's right, he was born at Fort Dix. 
And um, from there, I believe we were supposed to go to Germany, but then my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so things kind of got put on pause for a while. Uh, he ended up getting out of the Army. And was this the, the time that he spent in Vietnam? What what part of the Vietnam era? Am, am I guessing the late 1960s? Yes, he was there from, uh, let's see, it would have been late 1965 to 1969. So two tours back-to-back. Was there any R&R? Did he get to come back uh, stateside at all? He did come stateside for a while. I don't remember it too much, but I've seen it in the videos, the family videos. Yeah, I was going to ask you. That's why he went back a second time, right? He did. He was an airborne ranger, and he just absolutely loved. He loved jumping out of helicopters. He loved the swamps. Um, He talked about it a lot. He just... He just loved being there. I, I don't get it. Were you old enough to have a conscious memory of, of missing him or him being gone? Uh, I think I was aware of his lack of presence, but that was about it. Um, I'm trying to ask this without have, asking. It, it, the, the earliest childhood recollection I actually have uh, is only a, a glimpse, and that's when we lived at Fort Dix. And... Um, it was kind of crazy, but my brother, my mom put my brother out in the uh, in the carriage in the carport. We were stationed on base, and somebody kidnapped him. <laughs> Whoa. And uh, my uncle was there, so my uh, my my dad and my uncle just went just went ballistic, and all the jeeps, the army jeeps, started showing up at the house, and and uh, it turned out it was just some six year old kid in the neighborhood that wanted a baby brother and came and took him home and. They found them and um, all's well that, that ends was, well, right? Wow. Yeah, but but I remember it was a very distinct recollection with my dad at that point. That's probably my my most significant recollection of him because he went from playing cards in the kitchen table to on a mission, and I saw him in action and very authoritative, very take charge. You know very methodical and, and just, you know, systematically going through the neighborhood uh, until they found my baby brother. Well, it's about what you would expect from a ranger. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get an idea of when, what a what, uh, pretty specific idea of the time period without asking exactly how old you are, Sue. I don't know if you realize that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and, oh, at what point? I, I, don't, I, I don't care. I'm I, 55, and I'm perfectly cool with that. Well, you and I, um, you know, and we learned this, you and I learned this a long time ago. We spoke about this with, with Dave last season. You know, we existed in Northern Virginia, uh, at least uh, work-wise, uh, in very close proximity in the late 1980s. How did you uh, end up in Northern Virginia, and when was that? Uh, we moved to Northern Virginia in 1979, going into my freshman year in high school. Um, my dad worked for, after after my mom died, um, and even after she got sick, really, he started working for Xerox in upstate New York. Okay. Um, and and uh, at some point, he got offered a Mid-Atlantic management region for Xerox in Washington, D.C., in Roslyn. Okay. And so we moved there. Well, well, let's go back then. Now, you mentioned your mother had gotten cancer. How old were you, and wh- what was your first recollection of knowing that she was sick? Um. I I was nine when she died, and she had been sick for about four four or so years at least. Um, I, my earliest recollection actually came down to um, 
as far as I know, the first time anybody told me that, that she was very sick is we were out in the front yard of our house in Webster, New York, and we were playing bocce. And I dropped the bocce ball, and it dropped my mom's foot, and she yelled. And that was when my dad said, how dare you, you know, do something like that. She's sick and she's going to die. Like, it just kind of happened like that. Like, I, you know, I think he was in freak-out mode, and I was, you know, like, I just did this, and all of a sudden it was like my world just turned upside down right then and there because I didn't know what it meant. I was going to say, did it did it register you to any any degree of the 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 reality of that, or really what it meant? And how tell me again, how old you were? I'm not sure how old I was then. It was probably third grade. That okay. would be my guess because we moved shortly after that. So okay. it was and that, probably about third grade. And that was in no, New York. I didn't. It didn't. I don't think I registered it at, in any way whatsoever. Um. I remember, you know, some things that happened around that time that started becoming very strange. My mom's parents started coming to visit a lot. Um, my mom started, uh, I, I caught her making me a raggedy hand doll. I didn't realize that's fully, that's what it was, but she was making me a raggedy hand doll. Um, and she, you know, she was sewing some custom things inside the belly of the doll. And I remember her crying while she was sewing it. You know, so I can, like, like I just didn't understand the the family dynamics and the things that were changing, but I knew things were different. Well, at a, at um, a fairly young age, you ended up, you, you lost your mother, and your mm-hmm. your role uh, kind of changed in the family. Uh, it did. Talk, talk, talk to us about that. So we moved from Webster, New York, to Ontario, New York, which was uh, more in the country. My mom always wanted a country farmhouse, and so that's kind of where we ended up. So we were on 17 acres of farmland in the middle of nowhere. We had six neighbors. And um, can you repeat your question? Uh, Yeah, no, we're just talking about the fact that, you know, you were young uh, when your mother passed. And, you know, you go from being a little girl, this daughter of the family, and doing what kids do and having the responsibilities in the world that the kids have. But with your mom dying, you took on um, a different role in the family uh, as as kind of a caregiver to younger siblings. Um, Can -hmm. you talk to me about that? Yeah, I have two younger siblings. Um, The youngest was two, and the other uh, was closer to six when she died. I remember sometimes when she was sick, uh, I would have to make the younger ones uh, bottles. And, you know, so this was a time of, you know, glass baby bottles and cloth diapers. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I don't know, seven years old, eight years old, fumbling around with big safety pins trying to figure <laughs> out how to, how to uh, put a diaper together without poking my poor brother in the belly, which I did many, many times. And um, trying to make him uh, bottles, and eventually we got those, uh, I think they're like their Playtex ones where you put the little baggies in the bottle. Right. And and that was great for me. And then Pampers came along, so that was great for me. I, I could finally um, kind of fumble through this process when my mom couldn't take care of him and, uh, you know, get him his bottles and, and change his diapers and not have to all the crazy things that went along with the cloth diapers and uh, I had to learn how to use a washing machine and a dryer 
um, cooking was a challenge. Uh, I, I really did not know how to cook, and if my mom didn't have the energy, um, it, I was kind of making pancakes and scrambled eggs. Did anybody ever actually uh, sit you down, Sue, and tell and articulate to you what you what needed to be done, or was it just a natural you seeing her kind of fading fading off um, and losing the ability to do some of these things? Um, how did that all happen? Did your dad sit you down and say, "Hey, you got you got a new role here, kid"? No, you know, I think my dad really struggled, and he stopped being around all that much. And I just kind of fumbled with things. I mean, you, you got a two-year-old kid uh, that's that's screaming, and you got to figure out what's wrong. And um, you, you know, it's kind of like, okay, that diaper stinks, and and fumbled through it a lot. Uh, thankfully, I had uh, we had a wonderful church family, and the people were coming to the house a lot uh, with food, especially when I started realizing how much we were struggling. They started bringing food. Um, they started helping, uh, the, you know, some, they taught me how to do laundry and, and how to change diapers. Uh, you know, but the best thing was they were bringing food and, um, that, that really, you know, got us through a lot. Um, because honestly, my brothers and I got really tired of pancakes and scrambled eggs because that's all I could figure out how to cook, uh, especially once we moved out into the country. My kids really um, like scrambled eggs and pancakes. I think they they might be happy with that all the time. Let's take a, just a, just a <laughs> but quick. But you know, when that's when that's primarily what you're eating, it gets old after a while. Really quickly, and, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know, this was the, you know there weren't a lot of frozen food things to get, um, so a lot of times it was you know just kind of rummaging through the freezer. I remember. I was too small to climb in the deep freeze, but I'd still, you know, kind of end up in there. Sometimes just crawl right in and try to look for things that I could figure out how to cook. And boy, did I mess up a lot of food. <laughs> I, it's a good thing there weren't smoke detectors back then because I would have had them going off all the time. Wow. Well, Sue, speaking of food, uh, Lorenzo's Italian restaurant has been part of the Las Cruces community for over 25 years, supporting schools, shelters, and veterans. Even during COVID times, Lorenzo's is offering patio tent dining, delivery, curbside pickup, chow now online, and mobile app ordering. Now offering customers any signature or two-topping pizza for only $15. There's only one Lorenzo's in town, and it's at 1753 East University in the Pan Am Plaza. Call 575-521-3505, and if I have to freestyle here for just a minute, I'm going to. If you haven't had the meatballs at Lorenzo's, well, you haven't had the meatballs at Lorenzo's. And on top of that, the fresh-baked bread that comes out hot to your table, all you got to do is pour a little bit of oil on the plate, a little bit of salt, and a little bit of Parmesan cheese, and dip away. Man, it is the best, best stuff. Now, Sue, it's kind of interesting that you were thrown um, into this role where you had to take on uh, some more, more of the traditional roles, of course, now for the 1970s, uh, traditional role for, for a young young lady in the house of doing the cooking and cleaning and diapering and uh, and laundry and things like that. At some point, though, you discovered you had uh, a knack for tinkering with things like bicycles, and and later you got into uh, cars. Uh, how take me through that? How did that all happen? You know, as a kid, I loved playing with things. My brothers and I spent a lot of time in our garage just riding our, our big wheels in circles because, again, we lived out in the middle of nowhere, so we couldn't just you know hop on our bike and go do things. So it was mostly just 
riding our big wheels in circles over and over and over. And, you know, I remember my grandfather would always get me a new bike for my birthday, but in between my bikes would break and things like that. And I would just start taking one bike apart and putting it together with another bike and seeing what worked and what didn't work. And that just became just something that I did, maybe kind of my, my happy hiding place. My dad had an old uh, cutlass parked in the driveway. And, of course, I guess it wasn't that old at the time. It was 1969 Cutlass. Um, but I just would open up the hood and just start poking and prodding things and unscrewing things that would unscrew and screw them back together. And that kind of knack just kind of kind of stuck with me. And we would visit my grandfather, and he had a snapper lawnmower, and he would teach me how to work on it, and he would let me just play and take things apart and put them together. I, I just like doing it. There were no, I imagine there are just tools lying around and you're picking things up, not knowing maybe what the names are, but you're using it and, and getting used to things. Yeah. You know, my dad always had one of those, uh, you know, craftsman type, uh, you know, toolboxes and he never, he never knew what any of those tools were. He was not that type to, to play too much with, with stuff. But yeah, I would just grab things and, I couldn't even tell you what some of the things I did were. I mean, I would, I would, I remember changing, uh, a front wheel from my brother's little bike to a front wheel on my big bike when my front tire was flat and trying to figure out how to make it work. And I, I remember having tools in my hand. I don't know what they were. Nobody told me. I just, just trial did and it. error. You figured it out. Well, you know, at some point you, you got a job doing this and you actually got paid to do that. Your first job was at a, at a gas station. Yep, it was, um, I was an emancipated youth. I had, I had moved out right before my senior year started the, the summer between my junior and senior year and I needed a job. I, I needed to pay rent. I needed to put food on the table and, um, the Shell gas station at the corner near my high school was hiring, uh, and I needed something between high school and where I lived so I could walk because I had to walk everywhere. And, uh, he was willing to hire me and my friend um, but it was only for one purpose, which was to basically prove that girls couldn't work as hard as the guys. And if any of the girls outdid the guys, they were going to be fired. And, and where, where uh, exactly you went to, was it West Springfield or Hayfield? West Springfield High School. Okay. Hayfield, how dare you? I'm, you know, those are opposite ends of the Fairfax County than where I'm from. Those might as well be, you know, truth or consequences to Las Cruces. I just, I don't know anything. To me, they're all just the same out there, whatever. So, so you're working at the Shell. Ga- West Springfield Spartan. So you're working at the at the at the Shell gas station, doing what? Are you pumping? At that time, you probably still had full serve, right? In the, in the late seventies. Yep. So we had one full serve station and uh, another self serve station, and then two what we called up on the hill, which was just on the side of the gas station that were were self serve. But because you had to to do everything manually, credit cards, and it was a lot of cash, you had to have gas station attendants. And um, the the person, uh, the, the owner, which is uh, kind of famous in the Springfield area, was Judy Brown, uh, he demanded that we give the customers the best service. Um, he was very demanding as a boss, and he wanted everybody happy. Needless to say, we had long lines constantly. And uh did you wear one of those little the, change thingies on your on your belt? Yes, I did. You mentioned you got pretty good at like clicking or how how was it you described given change? Yeah, so I could I could click it without seeing it, but you know, we would have um wads of cash cuz you always had to have your $50 bank 
And so I had my wads of cash, ones on the outside, fives, tens, twenties in the middle, so I could open it up and, you know, quickly get the change going. So I could do it fast. I was a hustler. I'm one of those type of people that it's all about efficiency. So all my dollar bills had to be lined up straight, and they all had to be set right. And if it wasn't, I had a different pocket that I put them in if I was trying to do things too quickly. And after getting flim-flammed a time or two, I learned to always put the customer's money in my right front pocket and give them change with the wad that I kept in my top left pocket. That's a nice little system, and I think you and I are like we, we talked about this recently about having to have all the bills face the same direction and not having them crumpled up. Now, you experienced a little bit of hazing uh, at the hands of oh, the, yeah. your, your coworkers. Uh, you got stuffed in a trash can or two and locked in a bathroom. Is that correct? Yeah, the bathroom was around the side of the building, and at the end of the night, the bathrooms had to be cleaned, and needless to say, uh, the lower people on the totem pole got bathroom cleaning duty, which was usually pretty disgusting by the end of the day. And it wasn't uncommon for some of the guys that were interested in getting rid of us to um, go to the bathroom ahead of time and make quite a mess. And so we'd be in there cleaning, and uh, I never minded cleaning the guys' room, so I would just do that. And sometimes they would just basically come in, two or three of them, and just pick you upside down, stick your head first into the trash can. And, and, well, at some point you proved your worth because you ended up doing the things that, that nobody ever thought you'd, you would be able to do there. You know, I, I kind of had to get away from, hang, you know, of being around the guys that were doing doing the abuse and the hazing. Um, and I managed to work my way to the full serve station because I was a hustler and the customers loved me. So I started working at the full serve station, which was right in front of the office. So that kind of gave me a little bit of protection. And it also gave me the opportunity to learn to, you know, air up tires and check belts and hoses and oil and stuff like that. And, uh, one of the mechanics, um, he started teaching me how to you know, be like, hey, look, if this hood has a it cracks in it, if this belt has a crack in it, send them my way. Let me check it out. Uh, he, sure t- you know, started showing me things like, um, you know, how to tell when engine oil needed to be changed, um, just the little things. And so I was able to start uh, throwing work his way. And he would help me fix my car. He would teach me how to fix my Volkswagen Beetle. And, um, I kept throwing them work and, and, you know, the, there's a kind of a phrase in the auto industry called soaking up the gravy. And so he was getting all this easy work, which was, you know, oil changes, uh, tires, changing belts, hoses, that kind of thing. Um, so they started making money. And so this kind of became a symbiotic relationship. And the more I hustled and the more jobs I got them, the more they helped me, the more they started looking out for me, um, and they would even, uh, you know, they earned, they earned my trust and I earned their trust. And, uh, like even the tow truck driver started driving me home at the end of the night because it was midnight when I'd be walking home. And, uh, walking home by myself, you know, it's pretty creepy. Yeah. So, you know, I was able to get, I was able to get rides home because I, I couldn't always keep my car on the road. It was an old beater and, uh, I couldn't always keep even gas in the tank despite the fact that it being, you know, a Volkswagen Beetle. So there was a lot of times I was just hoofing it. Well, I want to make sure I get things in the correct order. Um, if I'm not mistaken, was it David who helped you realize that you, uh, I guess you're in your early 20s and you didn't know how to read? Yeah. Um, 
So do you want to know how I met David, or do you want to go right into that? No, let's. I I, I tend to, you know, uh, having been a history major in college, I, I like chronology. As Dr. Harsh used to always say, chronology, chronology, chronology. Um, I right. just wasn't I'm sure a what I... I'm trail person, so I'm trying not to go down too many rabbit trails here. No, no, no I'm, I'm going to keep you on... I know who you are, Sue. I'm, I'm trying to keep you on track. But I, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I wanted to make sure that we did kind of do things in the right order. So now that I've got that cleared up, talk a little bit about how you and Dave met. So I was working at a different gas station in Vienna. and um, Which one? That's my hometown. All right. I lived there for a while. Um but it was actually cheaper for me to live in Springfield. So I, I but this job was a really good job, and um, so which, they were actually letting me turn turn wrenches and make money on commission. So I, I, I found out that uh, you know the automotive world pays quite well, and uh, I started doing the night jobs. This was the era that General Motors transmissions were blowing up left and right, and my boss would just line up the cars and line up transmissions, and we you know I would stay late at night. And uh, R&R, remove and replace those transmissions and, you know, have them parked outside by midnight. Um, This other guy started coming, too. They were just lined up. So we would do these together, and we would kind of get in a bit of a competition for for knocking them out the fastest. And uh, he invited me to his New Year's Eve party. He had this big dance hall in his basement. And um, he set me up with this guy that was kind of a drunk, and I didn't like him. But I was like, eh, you know, I'll respect, you know, my friend and, and show up. And I showed up late. The guy had left. Uh, and then, then he introduced me, uh, my friend, I'll call him Mr. T. He introduced me to his boss, David, who was sitting upstairs on the sofa. And I'm like, he introduced me to him and I saw his man Kane and I'm just like, okay, this is a little weird. And then, uh, I asked, I, I asked Mr. T, like, dude, he's blind, like, how could he be your boss? And, uh, well, it turned out he was. Uh, and so I, I ended up uh, sitting with David because he had this 12-year-old girl, sir, 13-year-old girl serving him beers sitting on his lap, and I had this drunk guy hanging all over me. And so another mutual friend of ours suggested uh, that I go invite him to dance, and David said, I don't dance. And I was like, well, can I sit here? And he said, Sure. And that was, that was, you know, the, the first, we just talked for, for quite a while, maybe an hour or so, pretty good conversations. And then, uh, he said his chauffeur, uh, was ready to leave, which was his brother. And, uh, so they left. And a couple of weeks later, Mr. T and I were doing some more transmission work and he said, Hey, you know, uh, David would really like to see you again. Why don't you give him a call? And you said he'd like to see me again. How's he going to see me again? It, yeah, this was kind of like weirdness. You know, it's a bit awkward. I wasn't sure if I wanted to or not, but, you know, hey, you know, I have a lot of respect for Mr. T, so what the heck. So I called I called David and invited him and his son to go to Chesapeake Bay Seafood House, if you remember that. Oh, I remember Chesapeake Bay Seafood. There used to be, was it the one on Route 7? Where Kmart, yeah, right next to where Kmart course. used to be. I, I can Is picture it? the sign in my head. Yes. Okay, it was right. it was right off of Route 7, so it was probably in front of the Kmart. Yeah. Okay, so that's where that's where we went for our first date. Now, if you remember Chesapeake Bay Seafood House, you don't have to read a menu. Right. You just order all-you-can-eat crab legs. What else are you going to get, right? I, I wouldn't get anything else. Yeah, 
And uh, so, you know, they're eating crab legs and hush puppies, and, uh, you know, which, of course, they fill you up on first. They fill you up on the hush puppies and water and corn, right? Oh, yeah, the corn, too. That's right. And so we um, we just talked and talked, and we were supposed to go bowling after. And all of a sudden, um, they're, they're putting the chairs up on all the tables, you know, flipping them upside down on all the tables. And I realized that we're the only people left in the restaurant. Jeremy had fallen asleep in the booth. And we must have just sat there and talked and talked and talked for three or four hours. And so I guess that was kind of the first clue that that we hit it off. Yeah. And and it was so it was our second date that David invited me to go to his restaurant, which it would have been um, Frisbee's restaurant down in uh, Reston near where he lived. And I had never been there. And let me guess, you had to read the menu to him. You got it. And I, I literally could not read him the menu. How did that conversation go with you with you not being able to read him the menu? Well, you know, when it comes to menus, I'm used to just pointing at a picture and, and running with it. Right. And they did have pictures, but he wanted me to read him the actual thing. And so I, I'm starting to read him this stuff. And, and after a couple of minutes, uh, he says, uh, that's okay, I'll just have the blackened salmon. And um, I don't remember what I ordered, but I didn't like it. I think I just pointed to something. Did he realize? It. Did he realize right then and there that you couldn't read? Yes. But he didn't necessarily address it. Yes, he did. He did. He did. So after we we order and we're waiting for our food, he looks up at me, and um, this is the first time he'd actually like to me kind of looked at me. And I realized that he he had what I call lazy eyes. I wasn't sure if he was looking at me. I was actually thinking that he could see at this point. And he said, you think you're stupid, don't you? And I was quite taken aback by that, and I really just wanted to get up and leave the restaurant. But you can't just leave a blind man in a restaurant. This is, Sue, can I stop here? This is really starting to sound like a Saturday Night Live sketch. (laughs) You've got the blind man and a woman who can't read at a restaurant, and you're talking about how you can't leave. There's something I just thought of, and maybe I can get a hold of Lorne Michaels, and and, uh, we we, we can make that sketch happen. (laughs) Continue on with your story. Reenact the skit. <laughs> so you can't leave a blind man at a restaurant. Right. So this is like, I can tell that at this point, I'm getting pretty kind of flush and embarrassed. And I really just, just want him to leave. And we get our meal. And I don't know if that's what it was or, or what, but I just, I just, I didn't want to eat. I just wanted to leave. And he kept talking to me, trying to tell me, no, 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 I'm not insulting you. It's okay. He said, you read like my brother. My, my brother has learning disabilities. He has dyslexia, and you sound just like him. And I was like, I don't know, t- really taken aback by it. But as I started to calm down, and I guess he kind of, you know, was trying to change the subject and, and but kind of come back around to it. He said, you know, there's things you can do about learning disabilities. And, and people with learning disabilities are actually really smart. And they figured out how to cope despite their learning disabilities. And the easiest thing to do would be just to find out first if you have a learning disability. So why don't you go get checked? And, um, and you graduated I, high school. I mean, you're a high school graduate. Yes, sort of. Okay. 
yes, yes, I have a high school degree, but my, especially my senior year in school, um, I was part of the uh, a program that's sort of like Arrowhead, uh, and I was going into early childhood development. We ran a preschool out of our high school. And so half of my classes were through the preschool, were through running that preschool. The guidance counselor did not want me and my brother in the same school at the same time. So if he was going to go from junior high to high school and I was going to graduate from high school, um, they had to do something. And I was not going to pass English. They put me in drama class to substitute for English. And the drama teacher was pregnant. So we had uh, ended up with a substitute teacher. That was how I graduated from high school. Wow. Well, in any case, you graduated from high school, and uh, David encourages you to go get uh, an assessment to see if you, were in fact, yep. have a learning disability, and, and what did you find? Well, he actually ended up paying for that because I didn't have a spare $400 at that point. Right. Um, and I went to a professional educational consultant, and she ran me through the gamut on a, on a full series of testing over the period of a, a few different Saturdays. And she said, you know, you have a visual auditory processing disorder with dyslexic tendencies. Like that was just gobbledygook to me, but she gave me a lot of recommendations and she, you know, consulted me uh, through some things to do to help to learn um, to actually start reading. And I started with David's books on tape. Uh, she encouraged me to start learning how to use a keyboard and computer. So I got some of his books on tape. I'm learning Word 123, Excel 123. Mavis speaking, teaching, typing type of, of stuff. Um, and I found that things that I could not do with pen and paper, I could do on a computer very well. Uh, my dad working for Xerox, we always had computers around the house, but this was the first time that I actually learned how to use a computer, learning, you know, to use, um, you know, primitive DOS-based programs. Uh, and I found that I could read on the computer much better than I can read in print in a book. Um, and I could learn very well by books on tape. So I just started just listening to books on tape, like all these books I was supposed to read in high school, books I always wanted to read, like The Hobbit, I started reading. And I found that I really enjoyed this this, this world of, of books. Um, and then I started going uh getting some of these uh books on tape and then books in print at the same time and tried to follow along but i found out that that didn't work really well because i learned that i was reading at about 450 words per minute in books on tape and i couldn't read that fast in print so i would get frustrated but i could take in information so fast so David convinced me not to worry about it. He said, you are taking in information so fast, and you are learning so fast with these books on tape. Just keep doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. Keep learning the computer. And so I did, and almost obsessively got into into reading and using the computer. And uh, then David talked me into um, taking a college class because I still really wanted to be a school teacher. And so I started taking some uh, psychology classes, um, gosh, all kinds of ch early childhood development classes, literacy classes. And the more I learned, the more I could learn. And for the first time, I legitimately was getting B's and A's on the top of my paper. Like, this is me. And I, I just, that just fired me up. 
and I was able to start doing more and more reading. The the, the childhood literacy class got me reading a lot of um, Caldecott books and and uh, you know other other books um, that were kids' books, but they were still a lot of them were uh, things like Wrinkle in Time that were also interesting to adults. And I just the more I learned to read, the more I figured out the the glitches in how my brain works. Um, I learned that when I get frustrated, it's usually because I'm tired or I'm stressed and I can't read. Like I, I even now, if I'm really tired or really stressed, I struggle with reading. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the letters just, just move around on the paper. Well, all the suit, um, all of this is happening. Uh, you get married, you and David got married. Uh, you end up working for him. Uh, I know you guys had a shop. There was a shop on Spring Hill Road in Tyson's Corner, and then you ended up Correct. out in Sterling. He's selling the jobs, and you're doing the jobs. And we're still we're talking about high end European motor vehicles, right? Yes, we worked on Jaguar, uh, Saab, Volvo, and of course MG Triumph, Toyota, Nissan, Mazda, Honda, Acura. And you're so not he, doing. He ran. He ran his shop at Tyson's Corner, and I ran my shop in Sterling. Okay, but you're not doing. You're not doing gravy jobs. You're not doing oil changes and tires oh, no. and brakes and belts. You're rebuilding nope. transmissions and motors. I didn't. We didn't do as much. Like if I did rebuilding of uh, of motors, it was usually the older British stuff because uh, it was actually cheaper and easier to get Jasper engines for the more modern cars. Um, transmissions we would send out to. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but there was a local transmission shop that was top notch. And uh, so we sent the transmissions out. So were you were you selling um, jobs at your business as well? Yes, selling and, the jobs, working on the cars. Um, my area of expertise came down to diagnostics. I if the, the more challenging the diagnostic problem, the more I craved it, the more I loved it. Did you ever find uh, anybody? Did you ever find yourself maybe in the, at least in the beginning? Um, not being so open about the fact that not only were you selling the jobs, but you were turning the wrenches as well. Well, since I was running the Sterling shop all by myself and did not have another mechanic on site, it was just me at first, the first year. Uh, it was pretty obvious. I remember uh, one guy walking in. He's standing there with the keys to his Jaguar, and he's looking at me. And um, you could see the shop at this point from the office. The office hadn't been closed in yet. This was a new a new building that we bought, a Flex Tech building. And he said, is this some kind of fly-by-night organization? And I could understand that because of the way it looked, and there was a dirt road coming into the shop. And I promised him, no, I think at that time we had been in business for 25 years, that we had been in business for 25 years, that if he didn't feel comfortable uh, at this location, um, he was more than welcome to go to our Tyson's location. And he just kind of looked at me, and he said, well, I'll give you a chance, but you, like, better not be selling my car. <laughs> you know, like, I think that's what he was thinking, that we were maybe a chop shop or something. Right. Now, did and, you um, did you have to get? Uh, and I know I worked as a parts driver for a for a Chevy dealership in Sterling actually for a while when I took a semester okay. off school. So I've I've been around shops. I, I'm not good with my hands at all, but I know that uh, as with any profession, uh, automotive technicians have a lot of continuing education and continuing certifications. Did you have all of the 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 basic or the normal normal certifications uh, to go along with nope. your expertise? No. 
I did. I did not. I uh, I had taken braking and suspension and ele- automotive electronics at the Northern Virginia Community College, and I did get ASC certified for um, uh, heating and air conditioning for automotives strictly because, and this was actually later, but it was strictly because um, they were requiring it by law. And uh, this was actually, you know, this was years enough later that, um, I had learned that most auto mechanics have learning disabilities, and I actually did the tests orally with the mechanics that were now working for me because they couldn't read the test. Wow. Yeah, which I was, I thought, I was kind of like, that was one of my really proud moments. You almost, that, almost that like I, coming full circle. Yeah. Wow. Well, at some and, point, you know, you're not just, obviously at this point, you're not just a, uh, you know, small business owner and a mechanic and a, and a mom and a wife. You're, uh, you're getting involved in martial arts. How did you and your family get involved in Taekwondo? Uh, Jeremy was, um, I guess he he was his first year, maybe his freshman year of high school. Um, it may have been the year before. I'm not positive, but he was really struggling in school. And uh, at one point, there was a, a knife fight in school that really took him back and he started getting scared about being in school. Um, his confidence was through the floor. This, this amazing kid in school was suddenly starting to fail his classes and we were at our wits end and I always wanted to do martial arts and heard that, you know, they were great. And I don't know if you remember the old June Reed commercials. Oh yeah. The two little kids. Yeah. Their hands would be up and they'd be, nobody bothers me. And nobody bothers me either. Yeah, and so uh, the June Reese School was too far for us to go because I would have to go from the Sterling shop to pick up David, back pick up Jeremy, change clothes to get to Taekwondo, and I could not get to a June Reese School in time. You know, that just didn't work. The logistics didn't work. But there was um, a Taekwondo school not too far away in uh, Herndon, Virginia, uh, Master H.K. Lee's uh, Taekwondo School. And so we started going there. It was a World Taekwondo Federation style. Um, we All three of us made it to Advanced Red Belt. We had permission to test for our black belts, but the Grandmaster was in a car accident that partially paralyzed him for a while. And uh, things kind of floundered in the school, and, and Jeremy was doing pretty good at that point, and we were just, you know, running the business, uh, pretty overwhelmed by everything. It just seemed like a time that, you know, we just kind of needed to take a break. And then Jeremy went off to college. Um, and we're just busting butt running the business and, you know, run, just working our tails off. At some point you retired. Uh, there was there was a, a changeover in the business. There was some sale, I believe, and, and you ended up uh, moving out west. When was that? No, we didn't move out west yet. Okay. Um, it was, well, my grandmother passed away in 1996, and that was actually one of the other things about Taekwondo is um, trying to run the business. And I was my grandma, grandmother's primary ter- caretaker after she was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. She was um, my mom was her only child, and so I was the one that committed after my mom died to taking care of her, and uh, and I did. I would leave work on Friday night and go drive up to New York and stay with her over the weekend. Usually David and Jeremy came, but sometimes David couldn't get away from work. And I would take care of her on the weekends and set up all the health care for during the week and just kept doing that over and over and over again. 
and uh, she passed away um, that year. And at that point, David was pretty burned out with the business, and I was just burned out with life, you know, and Jeremy was, you know, at college. And we just decided, you know what, Rob wants to consolidate the business anyway. Let's just retire. Well, Dad was David wanted to retire more than I did. I, I loved the business, but David was was really burned out, and I was exhausted. And it just seemed like the right time. So um, we closed down the one shop. David and I actually closed down that shop, and then David's brother started working at my shop to uh, to build that up in his you know in his name as we phased out the business the last uh, the last year. And uh, so, when did you end up retiring and moving out west? So, well, we retired in 1997, and we moved into my grandfather's house. We bought the house from the estate, and we lived there in New York uh, for ten years. But then Dunkin' Donuts Bakery moved into the neighborhood, serving 96 bakeries in the area. No, they do not bake their own Dunkin' Donut bakery uh, donuts <laughs> in the bakery store. And it was 300 feet from our back door, and we just realized that we needed to move. Like, that just really ruined the neighborhood for us. And uh, it was just, it was uh, it was about New Year's, coming up on New Year's would have been 2006, that we started, uh, like, looking, where, we can live anywhere in the world we want to live. Where do we want to live? And we just we just couldn't kind of pin it down, and it was New Year's Eve. We were having a fire in the fireplace. I closed the lid on the computer, and we just prayed about it and said, you know, wherever we're supposed to be, God, take us there. And, you know, the next day I woke up, and my email was, my inbox was packed full of Las Cruces, number one place to retire, <laughs> um, retirement magazine, Las Cruces, best place to retire to, just. You know, CNN Forbes Money Magazine, uh, you know, low cost of living, high benefits, great weather, 360 sunny days a year, 350 sunny days a year. So we decided to come out and visit. I really didn't know what Las Cruces was. Uh, I had been to White Sands as a kid, but other than that, I didn't, I knew nothing about this oasis in the desert. Um, so we flew out. It was originally supposed to be just for like a week. Um, and I was supposed to preach at my church the following Sunday, but our plane broke down and everything got crazy and they ended up rebooking us in this crazy scenario of things because they had to compensate us for the hotel and blah, blah, blah. We ended up staying for two weeks. We missed two snowstorms while we were out here, and we had a blast. We loved it. We went to White Sands. We went up to Leesburg Dam and uh, TRC. Um, we had no idea why they called it TRC at the time. It didn't make sense. Uh, it was the uh, the hotel we stayed at had a lot of people from the Chili Challenge, so all the Jeepers were there. Right. And so we got to go out into the mountains and check out the Chili Challenge. We hung out by the river for a while. We, you know, visited a variety of restaurants, and today, it's still today, La Posta is our favorite restaurant. Well, let's um, so let's let's work up to how you and I met. Um, when did you start training uh, at uh, Gracie Baja Brazilian Jiu Jitsu here in Las Cruces? Well, it was first three crosses BJJ, right uh, on on Seventeenth Street. It was getting near the end of two thousand eleven. And uh, I was 
uh, testing for my fourth degree in Taekwondo and really felt that living out here, uh, there wasn't enough to, to keep my Taekwondo skills up. Um, cause I had trained under Grandmaster Duxon Song in New York directly under him and I didn't have that option here. Um, I just felt like there was something really missing in my self-defense. I had no ground game. I was never, my brothers and my dad were wrestlers. My dad was a West Point wrestler. My brothers were both varsity wrestlers, but I was never allowed to wrestle. I wasn't even allowed to participate, but it fascinated me. It always fascinated me. So I actually called NMSU. There was a, a club there um, that uh, turned out was, they were basically kind of winding down and he had mentioned uh, three crosses. And it turns out that he now trains under Gracie Baja. Um, he's one of the black belts. Uh, but uh, he, so he sent me towards Jacob and Angela. And so, you know, I, I, I tried it out and I took a few classes. And, you know, there were a couple of women, but they were a lot smaller than me. Um, they, were, they were starting about the same time as me. And so I really, I ended up partnering up with guys and this was before the Gracie Baja curriculum because it wasn't a Gracie Baja school. Um, it was, you know, uh, it was coach Jacob at the time. He was a purple belt when I started. Um, and you know, he just, he would teach a technique and then we would practice it and then we would do a specific training live rolling. And I just got my butt kicked. Like, day in and day out, I got my butt kicked, left, right, upside down. I would go home. Sometimes I would just slam my bag down when I came in, and I hated my first. I hated it. I hated I hated not being able to do anything. I don't like being feeling incompetent. I don't like feeling not capable. I don't like feeling like I can't control my environment. And um, I, I just, I was just getting torn to shreds. And so I quit. I didn't even stick around. I don't even think I stuck around long enough to make my second payment. <laughs> um, I, I just, it was awful. But over the next couple months, it just kept niggling at me. Like I'm quitting something because I'm not good at it. I don't do that. I don't quit things because I'm not good at them. I figure out how to get good at them. But how do you get good at something when all you are is a nail? How do you become a hammer if you're only a nail? And I was just getting, I was just getting hammered on. And I, I just, I, I don't know, it just, it kind of bugged me that I quit, but it also fascinated me. Like I just, it was almost like magic watching some of these people like, like, you know, uh, Coach Jacob, um, rolling and just, it was so beautiful to watch. Well, we know, Sue, we know that you went back because when I met you a little over three years ago, you were a purple belt. And okay. I remember you, um, when I first started training in, uh, in the daytime class and you were one of the coaches there every day. And uh, you you explained it to me this way, that, that jiu-jitsu was, first thing you do is you learn the alphabet, and then you can start making, you know, uh, syllables and then words and then sentences and paragraphs, and then you're, you're telling stories. And, and that was a really good way of explaining it. Um, and that, and that, was, that was Professor Jacob's speech at his black belt test. Really? <laughs> yes. That was, that was a lot of what his speech uh, was, was talking about that. And it, it really stuck with me like, yes, like that, that is jujitsu. And, and, and that's the case. And, and so now, of course, you, you have been promoted. Uh, it's been what, about a year and a half, maybe. Um, you're now a brown belt. And for those of you who don't know, um, on, on the episode webpage, you'll see a, a picture of Sue. Uh, she's a short, stocky, 
woman in her mid-50s who has strangled me to the point of me tapping <laughs> um, more times than I can count. She has arm barred me. Do I get to tell my about my first time rolling with you when I was trying to choke you? I, I don't remember this. So go ahead and remind me. Well, uh, you had asked me to roll. It was, um, I can't remember, but you were a white belt. And uh, so basically, I'm a guard player. So, you know, we started on our knees, but I immediately pulled you into my clothes guard because you were big and you were strong. And I knew you were going to crush me like a dwarf if I let you take any top position. And uh, so I held you inside my guard. I think I've. Uh, you started to pass my guard. I got you in my half guard. I tried to take your back. That didn't work, and I knew you were going to pass my guard. I think your right shin was crushing my right thigh, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy's going to kill me. So I set up a choke. You had no idea what was coming, and you passed my guard, and then you went. Right into the choke. I'm going to get choked out passing your and you just garbled your words at that point because the joke you, was pretty tight. What did you hit me with? Uh, it would have been um, baseball bat joke. Yeah, those don't feel good. Well, it never it never feels good to get choked. But and, and the more you try to pass my guard, the more you were leaning into the choke. And, and it got tighter and tighter. I think I actually do think I remember that now. Well, that was one of you know the first of many times. Now you now I know I like you, you and I have been you and I have been both you know away from the mat for. Uh, at the, at least as long as uh, this pandemic has been happening, a little bit longer for me, and I know we're we're both uh, itching to get back. I'm I'm oh, set, yeah. set for my second uh, of the two vaccine series next week, um, and we'll kind of see how that goes. Before we end, Sue, I know you've mentioned a couple times um, your faith, and uh, it's not something you talk about all the time. It's not something that you know some people. Um, that's all you hear from them, but I know it's very important to you. Just tell me a little bit about your faith, what you believe, what church you go to, and and kind of what it means to you. Uh, well, I was I was raised Methodist, and I'm still kind of stuck with that. I go to University United Methodist Church. I have, that's where I've had the Taekwondo program, though obviously I haven't been there in the last nearly a year. Um, you know, we are social distancing, but uh, I've I've stayed with the United Methodist Church. Uh, I, you know, obviously I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and He has seen me through my darkest of days. Um, my first personal experience with Him uh, was probably at the end of my mom's life. Um, someone had come from church to bring us a meal, and she served it to to me and my brothers. And she went upstairs to my mom. And I, uh, I actually went up and sat outside the bedroom door. I had not seen my mom in, in quite a few days. Um, and the door was cracked open when, when she was in with my mom and I watched her, um, kind of patting my mom down and, and just, you know, giving her, you know, just wiping her in your face and her hands and her feet and taking a towel and drying her off and, and putting the bowl and the towel aside and, um, I'm just sitting there on the floor, just really not knowing how to take in what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. Uh, my mom only wore wigs around us, so I saw her without her wig, um, with just this, you know, strands of hair uh, sticking up and in her pink quilted robe. And um, I was kind of, I guess, feeling pretty freaked out at this point. And um, this this woman uh, started praying with my mom. And even though I was sitting outside the bedroom door on the floor, um, I felt like somebody had just embraced me. They were hugging me and they were holding me tight. And um, I was alone. 
but I realized that I wasn't alone, that that, that was Jesus. He was comforting me. He was there for me. Um, and that's what got me through. That's what got me through the darkest days of my life is, is knowing that prayer draws me closer to Jesus and, and he holds me and he keeps me safe and he protects me. And no matter how bit, bad things are, it's going to be okay because he's there. Well, Sue, I am glad you were able to be kept safe uh, and secure so that you can be here with us today to kick off our thank second you. season of the Square Peg Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest, Sue. Thank you for having me. It's quite a, quite a privilege. I really appreciate it. I, I really love that we were able to have Dave for the season finale, season one, and you for the season premiere of season two. And um, Yeah, that's fun. I'm looking forward to this airing. Ladies and gentlemen, we will uh, be with you next week. Uh, January 19th, 2021, when we visit with history professor, Dr. Timothy Nelson. We'll see you next time. The Square Peg Podcast.